Here it comes. It's the Music City Real Estate Show with Andrew Buckwalter. Coming to you from his roving camper studio, The Rambler, in Nashville, Tennessee. Join us as we travel about town to discover the best real estate in areas you want to know about. With expert advice, finding the best deals, and meeting Music City's hit makers and emerging artists who call Nashville their home. And now, here's Andrew. Hello, Nashville and all the other listeners out there. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 11. Today, I'll be sitting down with Ryan Stevens. He is a custom home builder in the Nashville area. And we will be discussing all things about new construction. And also, it's very beneficial to learn about some of the items in your current home. And also, I'll be interviewing Ty Clark. He is a singer-songwriter in Nashville. And he'll be playing a couple of songs for us on his guitar. And hope you were able to tune in to episode 10. I sat down with Terry Burns and we discussed all things home owners insurance related and what are some of the things to look for in your insurance agent to make sure that you have the right coverage. You want to make sure that your biggest investment is protected and you want to make sure that you have a good insurance agent that is guiding you in that path. Also, hope you're able to check out episode nine as well. A Door to Hope is the nonprofit that I'll be partnering with for the month trying to reach a goal of $5,500 to build a house in Haiti. Every closing I have, I will contribute money towards that amount and also referrals for the month. If you have any interest in helping reach that goal, please reach out to me. Now go ahead and turn up the volume and listen to Ty Clark play a song on the guitar. All right, we're going to do this little tune here. It's the latest uh, song that I've got demoed. It's up on the website. It's uh, ReverbNation.com. You can search Ty Clark on there. There should be a couple of songs, but you chose me as the most recent. So here we go. Maybe here we stay. Right here together Taking a chance on forever You're as cool as the breeze in a hot summer heat And as calm as the water on a lakefront scene You chose me You're as warm as a campfire when we snuggle tight I can hardly catch my breath And every time you're around both my feet leave the ground And I'm floating on air chose me for whatever reason to believe all my ways and my faults my occasional thoughts on a history between the woman and a man that's God's perfect plan and you chose me and darling I go back to the night that we first met It was the first night That I felt my heart melt You were too shy to say hi So I thought I'd sit by you And ask for your name From the look in your blue eyes And that smile on your lips I knew you were feeling the same And you chose me You chose me 
for whatever reason to believe All my ways and my faults, my occasional thoughts on the history between A woman and a man It's God's perfect plan and you chose me And if you ever thought my love wasn't true, my heart would stop Cause it beats just for you And if I ever start feeling so blue, honey, all I've got to do is look at you Cause you chose me you chose me for whatever reason to believe All my ways and my faults, my occasional thoughts on the history between A woman and a man, it's God's perfect plan And you chose me Today I'm sitting here with Ty Clark, and we are in Nashville, sitting at Centennial Park. And if you do not ever come out to Centennial Park, make sure you do. It's a great place, especially today. It is it's per- actually beautiful day today. Perfect. The wind's <laughs> blowing. Um, actually, I think this is the first time I was able to, in the daytime, anyways, to not turn the air on, mm-hmm. even though it's on. <laughs> Just in case we get a little warm, right? But anyway, Centennial Park. It's a great place if you. Uh, if you go out, a lot of times Natalie and I will come out here and we'll go out somewhere and eat and then we'll swing by, grab a Starbucks and mm-hmm. then we'll walk around the park Heck for like yeah. an hour and it's it's awesome. Beautiful. I man. love it. It's really, it really is. So Ty, um, he actually works with a title company that um, I work with and uh, I'm Limestone Title. So Ty, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well... Um, as like most people in Nashville, I guess I'm a transplant from uh, Louisiana. I moved up. It was August of 2015. So you know what's crazy? And I just thought about this. Today is a two-year anniversary that I moved up here, August 8th. How about that? Yep. I got up here on August 8th and uh, started work. I think it was a a Sunday whenever I got up and I started work the next day on a Monday. So um, moved up from Shreveport, Louisiana and... uh, Went to school back home there and all that good stuff and got an opportunity to come up here and, you know, play some music and, uh, you know, obviously get the career started in the tile industry and the real estate industry just in general, too. So, um, so super excited so about it. two years, me. right? Yeah, it's two years. What part total. of Louisiana? It was uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. Yeah, it's northwest part Did of you know Louisiana. I was from El Dorado? I did not know that. And Shreveport, we mm-hmm. went out. Just right south. Um, there. Love the horse races there. Oh my God! Yeah, my dad actually trains racehorses for a really? living. Really, so that's we, cool. We get the uh, behind the scenes look. Uh, we get to go back in on the backside and go see the horses and stuff before the race and stuff. And he goes all over. Uh, his name's Casey Clark, and he uh, he's a trainer in Louisiana. He uh, trains in at Fairgrounds, which is in Metairie, and then Delta Downs, which is right outside Lake Charles, okay. Louisiana Downs, Evangeline Downs. So some cool places there. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a cool experience, especially whenever you get to get in the winter circle. And when you win the trifectas, right? Yeah, those, those usually pay off pretty good. Well, I remember <laughs> we went, um, I had good friends, and 
um, the dad went to the <coughs> casino there quite a bit. Oh, yeah. That's what, Street, so, what Bozier's known mm-hmm. for, man. <laughs> so we would go down and we'd hit up the, uh, the horse races. And then I remember I went to the, uh, I think I went to the Kentucky Derby. It might have been a different one. Yeah. But facility-wise... You know, I was like, man, Shreveport's, you know, Louisiana Downs was really nice. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, you got all the history in Kentucky. recently just put some add-ons to that, too. I think, uh, like, Harris actually bought mm-hmm. the the racetrack there, and so they've added on. They put a casino in there, and, um, you know, so it's all slot machines. There's no table games or anything, obviously, you know, but um, it's kind of you get the, the two-in-one. Right, so there. right. It's, it's pretty cool, man. My dad, he lived uh, in Tyler, Texas. Okay. So we would— Cruise through, yeah. You know, I know Shreveport exactly. Shreveport often, mm-hmm. Shopton, Shreveport, so I've been oh, yeah. there quite a few times. <laughs> cool, um, man. So, so you've been here two years, yeah. Doing music, so doing tell music. me, you know, a little bit about the music aspect of uh, uh, what you're doing. Well, it. I originally got into it uh, just to kind of tell the backstory on it. Um, we, I was in college, had two roommates, and you know, uh, one night we we're all sitting around talking. And he was just like, "Man, you want to learn how to play guitar?" And for different reasons than you know having a dream to possibly write songs and play on stage and stuff but um so he ordered this old little guitar off ebay it was like 25 bucks and it came in the mail and he strummed on it like three times and then he just sat in the corner well one day um i don't know if i'm pretty sure i had an off day that day but um i just saw just picked up the guitar i went into my room and you know started playing some chords and stuff or trying to learn some chords and it was kind of just all been downhill from there and it started just wanting to play for some friends around a campfire and then it just steadily you know snowballed i guess through uh throughout so you, the so years you started so. it to impress girls around the campfire right basically yeah cool dude with yeah the guitar. i mean i was gonna let you say it not me <laughs> <laughs> so uh and like i said i got the opportunity to move up here and you know thought what better place you know to try to you know live the dream so right i mean it'd and, uh, make you stay on top of your game absolutely there's and a few musicians everybody around. you meet in here can play guitar write songs way yeah. better than you can so uh it's, no it's, it's it's been so much fun i've i've met a lot of cool people man through just like the contacts i've made and been able to write songs and you know everybody tries to really or the way that i know that i am especially in my songwriting you know you really express yourself through uh, songwriting mm-hmm. and you know when you get you start talking to these people and they start putting some lyrics down on paper it's like man you know that's some pretty cool stuff just to kind of see it through their eyes in the way that you know you mesh especially in co-writes I love doing co-writes man I've written right. some really cool songs with that because you may have one direction with the song and you get in the room with two or, or one or two other people and you go in a com- completely different direction right. and right. it just makes the song a thousand times better but yeah, you know, it's it's kind of everybody putting it's in like their everybody own. Everybody kind of plays off that one idea, that yep. one word, that one exactly. thought, right? Yep, I've You're never exactly done right. it, um, but <laughs> I would joke every time we would go up to a buddy's house up north and we'd play cards. Yeah, and uh, he's got a few number ones. Every time I leave, I drive home. I had about thirty minute drive on sixty five, and I'm like, man, I'm gonna write some songs. Yeah, you know. I never mm-hmm. did, but it was a good thought, you know. And I've written, I think, probably two of the coolest songs I've written so far up here with um, a girl named Amy Shinowith and a guy named Nick Nichols, and uh, they're both good friends of mine and um, just incredibly talented songwriters. And um, 
like there was one it was uh, she don't look like what she's been through and the other one was WWJD it was kind of a Johnny Cash June Cash okay. hard, yeah June yeah. Cash deal uh, so um, it turned out really cool the idea and I called her I was like ah, we have to do this right now and she said okay let's do it so it turned, it turned out really really nice, good though man nice. so, I mean, that's I what, I, that's that's what I love about when you have the ideas you gotta put it on paper like I was sitting today um, you know no maybe I was ironing I don't know what I was doing, but I had to thought. I think I was taking a shower. That's where my thoughts. Yeah, know, kind absolutely. Of like, everything's turned off, and uh, but I was thinking about another idea, mm-hmm. like because you could just. I it's could just do a little so hook or just a little tagline or something. Yeah, no, I'm not thinking of songs. You're I'm thinking, just thinking of just of ideas. ideas of like, just in, ooh, I can do like 15 minute segments with uh, with businesses around here, like that. You're talking the about incorporating this. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's yeah. Um, and I'm sure it's like well, as me, I can kind of jot it down. Whereas you, you're like, oh man, I, you probably got to run with it, or you might lose right. It all. And in in some instances, man, I used and I used to put everything down on like sticky notes and paper and stuff. Well, now I've tur- I've kind of utilized the notes in the app in my phone there. And if you looked at it, there's probably close to 150 different notes, and they're and majority of them are just little song lyrics or just one little liners or something that. You know, maybe I can use later on, right, but right. I do. I used to have a little Tupperware uh, bowl that I would keep all these notes and stuff, and I'd put it back on. If I went back there right now, I mean, just I, I would cool. probably be blown away by it. I haven't checked it in a while, so, but I, haven't, I need to go back to so it. So you really jumped into it? You said in college? Yeah, okay. and um, yeah, definitely playing guitar and writing songs in college for sure. Um, I guess I've always kind of liked. You know, doing the poetry side of everything. That's okay. what songwriting is, just being a right. cool, cool poet. You know what right. I mean? So um, I've always liked, you know, putting words together and, you know, the rhyme scheme and, you know, how everything works together. And so um, I guess that kind of blossomed on top of that. And putting the two things together was really, really, I thought something was really cool. So, so where'd you go to school? I went to Louisiana Tech University okay. in yeah. Ruston. In Ruston? Yeah. Went yeah. to Captain Shreve High School and then went over there after school. And then, So what did you get? Did you graduate? Yeah, with I graduated with a degree in geographic information sciences. So I was, a, I was a cartographer, basically. I made maps for an oil and gas, line, really? oil and gas pipeline company in uh, Bossier City. I huh. uh, worked for a company called uh, Landpoint Incorporated, and I was a GIS analyst for them. And... Um, well, you know, the, the energy crisis kind of hits and, okay. you know, and so we, uh, we all kind of went in different directions after okay. a while. I mean, the company's still doing great. Um, you know, and so what made you there. go for that jury? Um, man, you know, it's, that's really, that's a really good question. I started off as an accounting major and that kind of, you know, I lost my interest there and then, um, was looking at some other things in the applied natural sciences division and, I saw this and was like, man, this is really cool because I'm. I love the the IT aspect of you know just you know just career and just in general there, uh, but it's uh it just kind of piqued my interest, man, and okay. thought that doing maybe oil and gas stuff or doing something with wildlife or something like that, and you know, in in that sense yeah, there. So you get got the southern aspect, huh? sportsman's paradise. Uh-huh. So that's what Louisiana is, man. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, Actually, I think my, uh, I think my, either my papa or my stepdad, they would go to Ruston, I think. Yeah. And hunt. Yeah, it's cool, man. And, uh, yeah, there was a couple of projects that I did just throughout college and stuff. Like, my buddies had hunting leases and, um, you know, we'd go out there and we would, um, map out various points. You know, they would have GPS and we could 
do different map dots or map points where their stands were at, or maybe where their food plots were at, or you know where the creeks would run through and rivers and stuff like that. We would go out there and just map out the whole thing. And one, it would help them. They could make like a big, big map of it. And for two, I could turn it in as a project for school. So it was a win-win for yeah. me. So, yeah. And it, that that's something that just interested yeah. me and still does, but um, just kind of got out of that Is there any kind of market for that in Nashville? You no, know, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't really looked much into it, but um, I'm sure there is of some sort. And I guess thinking about it, too— um, you could almost incorporate the real estate aspect. Obviously, you know, you need surveying and stuff done, so mm-hmm. you're going to need mm-hmm. uh, GPS and stuff there. Um, but I don't know. I guess it takes a little bit more thought there, but I think that it can be incorporated in um, various different industries for sure. You're like, yeah, we'll let somebody else do that. I'm going I'm to focus on that. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing it. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm going to keep doing what so, I'm doing. Great first part of the interview with Ty Clark. Make sure to stay tuned after I talk with Ryan Stevens about building, as we'll pick up on the second part of the interview with Ty Clark. Today I'm sitting with Ryan Stevens with Ryan Stevens Custom Homes, and uh, we're in Lebanon. So I wanted to sit down and get some building insight from him as he's been building for several years and uh, figured that it would be some, uh, some good info for buyers looking to build. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. So, uh, obviously, I'm a, a Wilson County guy. So, this uh, this market is kind of a market that I've not only grown up in, but then also been active in, in terms of the building community. Uh, started building in 2005 on my own. Uh, had previously worked as a subcontractor, just like a lot of uh, guys do early in their careers. And um, in 05 obtained my contractor's license and started building and basically saw uh, the good and went through the bad and now starting to see obviously the good again and um, you know it's been nice to see kind of our market do well again and and obviously be prosperous and obviously the influx of outside people to the middle Tennessee area has been the proponent for our growth so um, where are you primarily building so mostly Wilson County. Obviously, I do get spread around in building custom homes. I have, I think, worked in most all of the surrounding counties now of Middle Tennessee. Um, I'm not opposed to working outside of Wilson County, obviously. Uh, it just depends on if it makes sense for myself and the customer. Uh, if, if there's something that I know that I would be of disservice to take on. There's been times when I've not worked in other areas just from a time value, a costing standpoint, a service standpoint. You know, when you're building a custom home, there's a certain amount of due process of time that that consumer expects and deservedly so should get. And so if I know that the expectation would be difficult to accomplish, then, you know, I would prefer to just refer them to someone else that I think would maybe be of service. But uh, obviously, I have traveled outside of this area without issues previously. Right. Yeah. Right. So, what's the biggest difference between a custom built home versus you know the big builders, big spec builders, neighborhood builders? So, very good question. Something that I get a lot. I think you know one of the biggest questions that I think the general public construes is when they go out and they look at what the housing market consists of in terms of new construction and they start looking at, you know, what their money gets them. You know, sometimes 
obviously it's hard for them to find exactly what they want. You know, they maybe like certain things about houses, but not all things. So obviously there is a benefit to building a custom home. You're generally going to get, for the most part, more of what you would generally want. I think the biggest misconception, though, then sometimes is just from a costing basis. You know, everybody likes to talk about cost per square foot. And so, you know, you get that conversation and, and question a lot. Hey, what's your, what's your cost per square foot to build? Well, it's, it's very relative. It's subjective to the location that we're building in. It's subjective to the floor plan and design. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, you see in a spec-built product is those are cost-efficient homes. There's a reason why those builders are building those plans. They're cost-efficient. So that generally, their pricing structure is going to reflect that. So when you go and look at that product and you see what it's selling for per square foot, I think the biggest misconception then is, oh, well, I can go build a custom home in a similar square footage value and be similarly priced. It's not going to correlate that way. You know, and I use the the car analogy a lot because I think people buy automobiles. And so it's easy to assess, you know, you can go down to the Mercedes dealership and, you know, they make a a certain class of vehicle. But in that class of vehicle, there's going to be a broad price point and there's going to be a whole slew of options that you can either add or take away. And so you can buy that entry level base model for you know, 40 grand, or you can get into the tricked out loaded edition for 60 grand. And so that's a fair assessment with a custom home. You know, I think, you know, you can take that same spec product, but then when you start feeding it some steroids to Mm -hmm. get it to the value of what you want in a custom home, then it's very easily, you know, you're going to see a 10, potentially a 15%, you know, adjustment to that product. And so I think that's where everybody is not subjective to, to doing a custom home. They're not. You know, some people lack the discipline that they would need in order to build a custom home. You know, some people are a, a little bit better off if something is already a little more structured for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot of folks that I meet with that in my consultation with them and, and doing my due diligence to make them recognize, you know, what we're doing and what the process entails, you know, it can be a little more overwhelming to where they feel like, you know what, Maybe I need to buy a spec house that's out there. It's not a bad product. Maybe I need to partner with a builder to do a pre-sale type product where, you know, we do have some some options and we feel like we can make it ours because we got to choose the paint colors. We got to select the tile. We got to choose the stain color on the hardwood. You know, th- they were involved and engaged for the most part, but they were still very structured right. and, and limited maybe as to the resources that they had. You know, they couldn't bring the iPad out with all the Pinterest photos right, and, and, right, and go nuts right. and find themselves, you know, having to pay a bill that they weren't so, readily, you know, wanting to pay. It's funny you say that because recently our, our bottom downstairs have been flooded. And so we're taking advantage of it and we're updating a lot of stuff. Yep. And, man, just having the options for, not for me, because I can go somewhere and pick it out because um, I'm not that picky. Um, but my wife, on the other hand, you know, if we're going to spend this amount of money, it's, you know, you're looking for perfection. Sure. With all those, yeah, Pinterest, you know, and, I mean, I, I, yeah, that's an interesting, you know, um, thing to teach buyers because it's like, yeah, you walk into, you know, um, a big builder and it's like, here's your five options. 
And, you know, here's your upgrade cost. And it's easy to say, you know, to keep them within those restraints versus if you have the total freedom, you're over here going, um, you want your house built? You've got to <laughs> pick the granite, right? You know? Well, and I, and I think I think today one of the struggles that I face as a builder is, you know, meeting the time values of the consumer and a costing basis that is acceptable, okay? You know, those are the two things that I think are the biggest challenges that I have from a building standpoint. I've told every customer I've ever worked with, there's no limit to what I can do for you as long as there's no limit to the number of zeros you can put in your checkbook. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, all things are possible. And I've never felt like I couldn't meet those people's expectations on the product, okay? Now, time is one thing that you know, today we're fast food fed, we're internet savvy, you know, patience is a virtue that is fairly easily lost. I'm guilty of it. You know, like I've told people before, you know, think about you get in the vehicle to go on family vacation, you don't even uh, get directions anymore or put the atlas in the car. You just throw the iPad or the phone in there and you type in your destination as you're pulling out of the driveway and immediately you're getting a return on where you're headed right we don't we don't plan we don't prepare we're not conditioned for patience and so you know when you get started on a house project man it's a it's a marathon it's not a sprint and so you're having that conversation with that consumer of look it's going to take 30 days to permit this project it's going to take 30 days for the bank to do the construction loan there's a certain due process that we're going to encounter that you know is definitely a little more forgiving on the spec side because a lot of those decisions have already been made through the selection process to where they're not waiting on, hey, what are we going to do with the spindles on the staircase? What are, I mean, little, right. little bitty details of things that Less you know you absolutely that you take go. for granted. So, how about um, just the difference from a well, just builders in general? I mean, obviously, you've been in, been in it in a while. Um, and just the experience because, you know, sometimes when I logically think of a home, like I look at my home and it was built by a builder that would have probably started out with a low price point. You know, if you wanted doorknobs, you got to pay for those, you know. Um, and it was built in 2000. Um, really no problems with it that I'm aware of. So, but I would say, and because I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, you know, sometimes I wonder if the, if the uh, um, conception, I don't know if that's the right word, but... Um, is that because a builder has such a um, low entry price point, they're a cheap builder. Um, now, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, you take that same builder, like you said, and you go add all the bells and whistles, you get the house up to this one, you know? Right. Um, so does it necessarily make them a cheaper builder? In your experience between builders, what should buyers look at, um, you know, because that is a, a question that I get often. So in this, well, in any, in, in any industry, competition makes for good business, right? So I think it would be naive to believe that any consumer that would start the process of trying to build a custom home would only solicit consultation with one individual, okay? You know, even if they were related to that individual. I think there's times where they still might go and just talk to somebody else just to make sure that they're doing their research and their due diligence in the process, okay? 
Now, what I have always encouraged all of my homeowners, do not let price be your motivating guide in who you choose to partner with in the process of building your house. So this statement is very true. You're typically going to get what you pay for in all walks of life, but especially in construction. And so if you're talking with, you know, multiple builders, you're probably going to get a very broad pricing range. You know, it's, it's amazing to me, you know, in my 13 years of being in this industry, you know, guys are always going to try and find potentially more creative ways to display a price point that they can construe to be cheaper because sometimes people gravitate to thinking that cheaper is better. So, you know, I think there's times where you just have to do your research and recognize that if there is a huge disparity in your builders that you are pursuing, most of the time that disparity is not because one is, you know, that much higher to conduct business with and this one is this much more affordable so much as that's the difference in the product that they've priced out for you. You know, one has a higher classification of windows. One has a a greater trim package. One has, you know, figured your tile floor coverings to have a pattern lay and the other one's just figuring cheap 99 cent ceramic tile. I mean, at the end of the day, that's where, you know, the disparity can be within the selection process itself. Right. And then, you know, what starts to happen is, is, you know, you pick said builder that has a cheaper price and, you know, you get started in the process of building with that builder within a short period of time, you're going to recognize that, man, that budget sheet that he gave us was not a reflection of the product that we truly wanted to build. Now, it doesn't mean that he lied to you per se, so much as the product that he priced to you was really not reflective of what you anticipated to build. That's where kind of doing your due diligence with that builder on the front end to recognize, hey, he is pricing what we specified that we wanted or what we said we wanted. There are a lot of builders that literally will walk into somebody's house or they'll, you know, the homeowners will just drop a set of plans off at the office and that builder just takes them and prices them. Well, what did he price? Right. You see, that that's... that's the, I mean, there's so many... Absolutely. Windows or cabinets, sure. the product. And, that's right. And I guess that's where knowing, um, I guess, communicating and trusting your builder. That's right. Because if you say that... Because you could easily say, well, yeah, I use this window. Well, what's the difference in these windows? That's right. Um, so... From a standpoint of a house being built, you know, you got a slab versus a crawl space. And I'll ask you the difference because I always get that. Um, but wood, you know, you have a builder, you got two builders. Are they using the same type of wood? Are they using the same type of sheetrock? Are right. they using the same type of nails? Right. So from a foundational standpoint, is there going to be a big variation between builders or are, can contractors be that different, your subcontractors be that different as well. So, yes. I mean, obviously, you have different grades of a lot of things, wood in particular. Um, you know, I think today that that can be some of the difference again, like if we're talking in that spec product versus that custom product, generally, hopefully, that custom guy is trying to be a little more towards the, you know, middle or upper end of what his product consists of. You know, I know one of the things that, you know, we try and do a good job of, and again, this is just a difference in business model. In that custom house that we're building, you know, we're trying to ship our lumber in stages on that product. We're culling through that lumber because, you know, again, we're trying to put 
the better products within that house. You know, the bad lumber that we call through, the lumber dealer that we're doing business with recognizes that that's a byproduct of our business and, and they're part of their service to us. They're going to credit that material back. So we're not losing that value in the process of how we conduct business. But that spec guy that's out there, you know, he's got his pricing point to the bare bones. Part of the reason he has that is that lumber dealer is giving him a one drop price. They know that they're not culling through that material. They're not doing credits back on some of that. And that can be just the difference in 10% of pricing, okay? But again, that product that they built, if that two by four was bad, it didn't get cold. It got put in the wall. And so not that the product that they're building is necessarily just inferior, right. but it's a different product. You know, it's that, again, it's kind of like that car analogy. Which classification of Mercedes did you want to buy when you started looking at those two vehicles? Because you can get both of them. Right. And and there's a different price point to each one. Is there a big um, difference in um, custom builders as well as their product? Same scenario, or are they all... Do they go through like that wood calling, you know, price? So, uh, again, I, I, I think most of your custom builders would probably be in a little bit better of a classification. I think the only thing you have to be careful of is a lot of people use the word custom and they can use it very liberally. So it's identifying what kind of reputation does this guy have? I and mean, just because he says custom in his name, just because he builds a couple of houses, maybe with the general public. Uh, in the process of a year, you know, how good of a job is he truly doing? You know, I can't, I mean, obviously it's it's just like anything, you know, there can be a wide range, but I would say typically I think most of your true custom guys, they're trying to use potentially uh, better products, you know, better subcontractors, you know, they're trying to hold a standard that requires just a little bit more expectation, if that makes sense. Right. So, like in, in Nashville, Middle Tennessee, Mount Juliet, Lebanon, you know, a lot of building. Are the builders using um, some of the same contractors, or are you like, say, do you have just your contractors? So, you, you will see some of that sharing value from the standpoint of, you know, I think in any market, whether it's Wilson County, Sumner County, Davidson, Williamson, most of those markets kind of have their small eclectic group of builders uh, that kind of are more in that custom niche. You know, I think if you go into any of those markets from a consumer standpoint and you start partic- you know, potentially soliciting somebody that you want to partner with, you're going to find that a lot of the same names are going to be the ones that surface. And then in that network, of, of builders, you're probably going to find a very similar subcontractor base. In other words, you know, they're not all going to be sharing the same guys for sure, but their their resources are going to be some of the same, and if not, at least very similar. You know, one of the things that I've tried to do in the last couple of years, just recognizing the, the market increase in demand was, you know, I've tried to do a little bit more in terms of housing so that I could keep my subcontractors busier. And that that motivation to do that was that time value, again, like I was talking about earlier. You know, there's nothing worse from a consumer standpoint to see a product sitting for any period of time. And so, 
you know, the the builders that are trying to build two, four, five, whatever the number is, you know, that that number of homes a year, um, even though they may be very big and, and time consuming projects, their ability to have their subs readily available to make the time value that process conducive is, is going to be very troublesome. Right. right. If you can't keep your people busy, then you can't keep them They're on your job. On to Absolutely. Next person. Yeah. So the and reliability is the key in this that's right. contractor. So then what starts happening is, is you may have a subcontractor that you've done business with for 10 years, but if suddenly he's busier working for other people, you trying to get him on your job can be difficult. So, right. you know, there's, there's one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to wait and be patient and let your job sit or two, you're going to back the dump truck up full of money and pile it out on the ground and hope that he shows up because you're incentivizing him financially. Well, then you're doing yourself a disservice, and right. especially your consumer a disservice because you're costing them money in order to get that guy there. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, difference between slab and crawl space, pros, cons? Well, so obviously you see both in our market, uh, depending upon you know where you're potentially moving from. You know, there are those building trends are a little more applicable in other regions of the country. Our market has been a mostly crawl space market, you know, for a long time. And used to, you always kind of had the stigmatism of a slab product, but it was, in my opinion, unjustified. It was just somewhat of just an uneducation of the consumer of it wasn't normal to them, if that makes sense. Right. So, you know, you're starting to see more slab products today. Just because as your track builders are more engaged in Middle Tennessee, that's generally their format more so. A lot of that is because of how they develop their property. They're trying to build in a volume orchestration. And so they generally develop their property so that their products are pad subjective and it enables them to make multiple starts simultaneously. Whereas in a more traditional setup, you're, you're kind of, dealing with the topography on an individual basis more. And as a result of that, when the topography is a little more um, sloped, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a little less conducive to a slab product. And so that's why you've seen more crawl space building in this area of the country in previous years. You know, our topography is, is up and down. We don't just have flat ground everywhere. That's why when you go out in the southwest and other areas of the country where it's more flat, they do slabs because it's subjected to that. Pros and cons, you know, obviously when you have a crawl space home, you now have uh, an environment underneath that house that is subjected to, you know, conditions that sometimes cannot be as, as readily controlled. So when you get into a crawl space house, if the waterproofing values and things weren't done properly on the front end. You know, you see bad examples where crawl spaces can sweat. And, you know, when you have an unconditioned environment under that house, it's going to influence and affect how that subfloor and then the floor coverings, you know, in the residence itself perform. You know, that house is a living, breathing organism. So there's times where in a crawl space value, especially, you're going to get seasonal movements out of that house and especially out of that floor. It's a byproduct of that. When you get into a slab product, you know, you're kind of mitigating some of that uh, from the condition Sometimes standpoint. Sometimes you have to mitigate the uh, 
radon, right? <laughs> is, 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 so, is radon more evident in a slab than a cross? So you, you, you would still uh, you would still put your radon venting applications in in both products, okay, okay to try and suppress that gas. Um, but you know what what you get into with the slab is is you are kind of because you're basically filling that airspace with concrete, you are somewhat suppressing that conditional value of that airspace to where you know, the performance value of that subfloor may benefit from that. You follow me? Right. Now, what happens is, is, you know, you kind of get to, there, now there's a, now there's a, a performance standpoint, okay? Crawl space house, you know, if you're somebody that has knee problems, uh, you've got a little bit more deflection, you've got some give in the subfloor of that house, it's going to be more forgiving to walk on, to live on. You know, the other thing is, is because it's a wood subfloor, you're not as restricted to the products that you have available to you to put down in a finish capacity. You want to put sand and finish raw wood down, the application to do that is pretty, pretty simple. Uh, when you get into a slab product, you have a little bit more complications in terms of your floor covering selection. And then if you're somebody who has knees, foot issues, you know, that subfloor is not going to be as forgiving and you're going to be on a solid substrate. Now, can you put a sand and finish on a, on a sub? You could, but okay. you have to do a proper underlayment. And then, you know, you, you basically get into a glue down application, which right. is fine. You know, but I guess the process is just a little More bit. expensive. It can be, and it's a little bit less conventional, if that makes yeah. sense. Right. Uh, some people can be a little bit leery about putting wood on a concrete substrate just because of the condensation value, okay? That's where the underlayment becomes a, a pivotal value to the roll. So what happens is if you notice in most of your slab homes that, that you're going into, you very seldom are seeing sand and finished products in that house. It's more of an engineered product, land right. product, right. something to that effect, which is fine. They're not bad products. But again, it's all pros and cons. Right. You know, it's like I tell people, you know, a slab house isn't bad. Crawl space house isn't bad. All of, both of them are very conducive and acceptable building practices, and, and one can be, I think it's more of just how is the lot, right. what's your conducive style of living, what's your desires and taste buds. How about from a cost standpoint? Just Very just similar. To, okay. Yeah, so, you know, what you're basically doing is, you know, the amount of money that you would generally be spending on your subfloor package of your house in a framing scenario, you're kind of foregoing to the expense of, of gravel and concrete. Um, you know, some of your, one of the things that your track guys like is, you know, their prep time to their pour time is a little bit quicker than, you know, their foundational value with their block and then conventional framing. You know, the other thing is, is, you know, a lot of their packages, how they're built, you know, it's just a little bit easier in how they construe things. Mm-hmm. They're they're doing a lot of prefab stuff in terms of paneled walls and things like that. If they're working off of a slab, so, they don't have to worry about any subfloor values. You know, it's just a little more simplistic, right. you know, building way, essentially. So, crawl space, when should the vents be open or closed? So, very, very good question because, you know, one of the things that we see in our climate is at certain times of the year— it's, it's good and bad. Um, so let me tell you what I think I know on this subject matter to answer this question. Because I think, you know, in the wintertime, 
everybody wants to close their crawl space vents essentially. And then in the warm time of the year, you want to open them, right? That's what we all would think would make sense. Well, there's some merit to that on to on some levels, but then there is some improper theory behind that too. So what happens is, is a, a, my understanding with about every single degree of temperature variance, there's a little greater than 1% in moisture exchange, okay? What I mean by that is, is, you know, the outside air, the air within your house, all of that is going to have some moisture value. And depending upon the time of the year, it's going to be greater or less. Generally, you know, in the in the spring, in the fall, you know, our moisture values are going to be a little more stable in terms of what the humidity is. Uh, the wintertime is, is usually relatively dry, but there are times when we do have elevated moisture values in the winter. Summertime, generally our moisture values are going to be higher. Well, what happens is this. If in a given day, let's say we've got, you know, 70 or 80 percent humidity, which is not uncommon from the months of, you know, May to August, probably. Well, if it's 70 or 80 percent humidity and your crawl space vents are open and now you have um, 80 degree air from the outside filtering underneath your house, well, it's very common that the air underneath your house potentially would be 60, 65, you know, 70 degrees. Well, if you have, you know, 60 degree air underneath that house mixing with 80 degree air from the outside, well, that's a 20 degree temperature change. Well, that 20 degree temperature change is already going to equate to greater than 20% in a humidity value. Well, if you got 80% humidity in the air itself and you add 20 more percent humidity to it, guess what you have? underneath the house. Right? Condensation. That's so, right. So in a summer when the humidity is higher, um, then you probably should close them, Absolutely. Right? Because that's why you get a lot of sweating that's in the ductwork and stuff. That's correct. So what's happening is is... You know, you basically, when you're in unstable, what happens is anytime two unstable environments collide, generally there's a moisture exchange. So in that heat of the summer, when you generally would anticipate, hey, I need to open my vents, you might actually be better off closing your vents. And then another factor, too, would be if the water is draining really well away from your That's correct. That's correct. All those things are byproducts of that. You know, the other thing that, you know, Again, this is maybe getting way off in left field on this subject matter, but one of the things that we've seen in the last, say, three to five years has been the increased energy values that are being incorporated in new construction now. So one of the things that we see is, is you know, our ductwork is very tight on these houses, okay? Some of, the munici- some of the Middle Tennessee municipalities even do, you know, blower door testing on the final inspection stages of a house where they're basically pressurizing your house and your duct system to check your leakage values and make sure that they are tight. Well, what that means is, is in a crawl space home 10, 15 years ago and previous, you know, you would have a certain amount of air leakage from the ductwork underneath that residence, okay? Well... That was a bad thing from the standpoint of the efficiency value into the house, but that was a good thing from the standpoint of, you know, HVAC in a house is basically a dehumidifier. 
That's what it serves as. Even though it serves as a heating and a cooling value, it's also dehumidifying that space. That's why if you go in a house where the air has been turned off for an extended period of time, you get that musty smell when you go in there. You get that musty smell because that air is not being dehumidified. It's not being conditioned. Well, when you had leakage under the house, you were conditioning that you were you were dehumidifying that airspace. Does that make sense? It does. So now what you're seeing, I think, a lot of times is is the the ductwork is extremely tight. There is no leakage of air under that house like there used to be from a performance standpoint. And so now those crawl spaces are even more subjective to the sweating or the unstable environments than they were previously. I think that's that's a reality right. that guys, right. a lot of builders are seeing. You know, one of the things that you're starting to see now are guys entertaining the options of doing more of a controlled crawl space. You know, they're spending a little bit more money to do it, but the theory and the byproduct of that is, is look, if I can't rely on my vents and, and, and my homeowners essentially to open and close them and know when to open and close them, you know, basically, they're taking right. the responsibility to remove that application all to itself and go to a more conditioned crawl space scenario to try and promote a wellness under that house that is not likely to have an adverse effect on the living conditions moving forward. So, crawl space, do you do? Should you have? Um, where should insulation be? So, by today's code requirements, you know anything that has been built in the last, I guess, it would probably be three years. I think you had to insulate the subfloor or that crawl space. So you would generally have at least a BAT R19 value in the crawl space cavities uh, of your floor system. Or today, if you are doing a condition scenario, guys are able to forego the batted insulation requirement in their floor system, but then they're foaming their walls, they're sealing their vents off, and then they're pushing a certain amount of CFM of, of... you know, basically heated or cooled air or whatever that HVAC system is running at that time to condition that value of space. By conditioning that space, you're meeting the energy code requirement that is allowing that house to perform like it's supposed to within their energy values. Okay. So they so if they condition it, they don't even you don't have to worry about opening or closing the vents. That's correct. Okay. Cool. Um, all right, because that's you know I had one recently and they were sweating underneath and. You had a, um, I forget. You had a, um, you had different people come out, and they're quoting, you know, seven thousand oh, yeah. dollars to redo all the ductwork and all this stuff. And we ended up having a guy come out who, you know, basically, you know, said, "No, you don't need to do that. You yes. need to get the water yep. away mm-hmm. and get the water out. You know, um, remediate some of the mold that was growing because you had so much moisture. That's right. Um, and I'm sure that." they probably didn't monitor their vent opening or closing. Sure. So in a, in a general thumb in our um, Nashville environment, would you say it would be safe to close them all the time? Um, potentially. I mean, again, I think that's where you're starting to see some of our market go is to a little more controlled, you know, encapsulation value right. as a result. And, and I think some of that has been, in all fairness, more of a byproduct of what has just occurred in the energy code value and what guys are doing now to where they're not getting that duct leakage under their house. They're not able to condition that space mm-hmm. as much as they potentially were. And so the venting application is no longer 
uh, as uh, I guess complete maybe as it used to be. Right. Uh, and I think the other thing is, is anytime you're building from a builder standpoint, I know that, you know, homeowners today don't always take the responsibility or the vested interest in their product as they probably could or should. So when you're, when you're building, you have to be aware of that. You have to recognize that, you know, my homeowner's, don't plan on maintaining their houses right. all the time. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I, I built my house 10 years ago that I live in now. I got crawl space vents on it. But guess what? There are times when I have to, you know, go underneath my house and make sure, hey, do I need to open or close my vents right now? Because if you're not doing that, then there can be a possible circumstance guess, you know, that would exist. One, I guess one tool would be uh, just a monitor underneath there that tell, tells you the moisture levels, right? That's correct. Close the vent, or have it automated, right? That's correct. They do have okay. products available out there for that. Um, you know, the other thing is, is, you know, some of what you will see, and again, some people, my, my opinion on the matter on some levels is, you know, don't spend money until you potentially have to or it's a necessary requirement otherwise you may do something underneath that house that doesn't warrant it being needed right but like in the instance you were talking about where you maybe had to remediate a problem you know and i I think in the world we live in sometimes that seems like a monumental problem but really and truly it's not i mean you know those are things that can be easily remediated without too much trouble if you can take care of the water application from the exterior you know, sometimes you have groundwater issues under a house. That's not a it's not a fault of anybody's in the process of building. They could have put their drains in, waterproof, whole nine yards, and then you have a groundwater application that crops out under the house or a wet weather spring. You know, those are things that you know you, you can't combat. That's just a right. byproduct of where the house sits and the environment that it's being built upon. Well, at that point, you may have to go in and remediate that. That's fine, but then a lot of times you can simply just contain the water, dispose of it. And then dehumidify that space with an actual dehumidifier, and you don't need anything else. So there can be an example where, yeah, if you put a dehumidifier underneath there, generally it's set on a percentage setting, and you know, the only thing you just need to make sure is that that dehumidifier had power. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because if it lost its power source, then it wouldn't operate and function. But yes, I mean that's where you can easily control that space value. And if you did do that, generally you would be shutting your vents in the process of that dehumidifier running when it needed to be run. Duck work in the attic or crawl space? And one more advantage than the other? Um, so, again, most of the time when you're seeing that, it's more application-specific than it okay. is a byproduct of one being better than the other. You know, obviously when you're in a slab product, duck work has to be run in the attic because you don't have a crawl space to run it in. Uh, anytime you have a two-story house— you're generally right. going to have ductwork, you know, in the crawl space area for the main floor, right? Attic space for the upstairs. So I think it just becomes a matter of both are acceptable. Um, you know, I think sometimes the the attic ductwork is going to be subjective to a little bit, well, to to a wider temperature base mm-hmm. because you know you're generally your attic is going to be you know, as close to the outside temperature as it possibly can be, which means if it's five degrees outside, it's potentially five degrees in your attic. If it's, you know, 95 outside, it's probably more like 120 in your attic, which means that duct work is going to be exposed to uh, greater temperature values, whereas your crawl space duct work is going to be a little bit more uh, contained 
you know, the temperature fluctuation is going to be maybe 20 degrees over a year's period of time, not, you know, right. 100. So um, as far as if a buyer is looking at building custom home, looking for land, um, any any tips financially you could tell them to prepare or what to keep an eye out for land? Well, land is the biggest obstacle I think that they face today. Um, you know, I think I, I've gotten the phone calls now for several years where, you know, hey, Ryan, we'd love to build a house. We just We just don't have a place to build it. And... You know, sometimes I'm able to facilitate that potentially with a lot. You know, I have the ability for lots, but that's not, you know, a lot of times that custom builder, they're not looking for a lot. You know, they're looking for an acre, two acres, five acres, 50 acres, whatever it is. Unfortunately, you know, land has been at a greater demand than what the resource supports right now. Um Sometimes the price point is reflective of that as well. You know, I, I've joked with some of my homeowners, you know, whenever I'm looking at a piece of property, I always want to clarify that I get the mineral rights to it when I buy it because obviously there's gold or oil or something there that, right. that they're aware of that I don't know about, which is why the price is <laughs> what it is. Um, but, you know, I think that is a blunt reality. You know, today, especially if you're wanting the convenience values of an area that you already live in or an area that you want to be in, finding land that is going to be affordable and offer all those amenities and things that you desire can be difficult. Mm -hmm. So you're starting to see some of these outer lying areas grow as a resource, as a, as a default. You know, I look at Wilson County and where a lot of the growth has started to kind of migrate uh, and things that used to seem like they were, you know, way out now don't seem so bad. Uh, but a lot of that is just affordability. You know, like I tell people, my cost to build generally uh, isn't going to change much, you know, other than infrastructure cost. Obviously, if you buy 50 acres and we're building 1,600 feet off the road, it's going to cost more. But the, the house product itself, mm-hmm. you know, that's where that infrastructure of, of lot or land cost can make a huge impact on their overall project cost. Because, you know, if we buy a $50,000 piece of ground and build a house on, or we buy a $200,000 piece of property and build a house on, the house may potentially cost relatively the same. Right. Just a matter of how much can we absorb in our property cost that we then have to defer into our overall project cost. Right. Because yeah. that obviously will change the price per square foot. Absolutely. Because of all that cost. Um, sure. Yeah, I had a buddy who, I think his drive, God, I forget, twenty five, thirty thousand just his drive. It's yeah. like a quarter of a mile up, up, yeah. up a mountain. Um, okay. So uh, as far as like financially, um, if they find land and they contact you, the land needs to be paid for different types of loans or roll that into different scenarios? So you, you do have different loans. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there are some banks that are a little more geared to service greater um, land purchases. You know, most of your conventional banks generally want to be in that five acres or less demographic from just how they do things from a conventional appraisal. They're not generally keeping that loan in-house. So when they do that, construction loan, they're generally selling that loan out to secondary market. There are some of your lenders that are a little more in-house in their products, and so those are the ones that are generally a little bit more pursuant in larger land acquisitions to then build a house on, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
both both institutions are generally going to have a, a split percentage wise of how they want to extend their financing. Most of the time, it's going to be between a 75-25 split and probably at the greatest, a 90-10 split. So it's going to fall somewhere in that classification. And what that means is, is, you know, if you're looking at a piece of property to purchase and then you're also looking at a potential, you know, construction project to build, what the bank is going to want is between 25% equity in that overall project based upon the appraisal value or maybe as little as 10% equity. And that's going to basically boil down to what's your credit, what's your income, what's your banking relationship, who you're doing business with. But that's that's kind of the breakdown. So I have a lot of homeowners sometimes, it's a very good question. You know, they think, well, we want to try to build a house, but we don't know if we're financially, you know, capable. And again, you know, you start buying a $100,000 piece of property and you start trying to build a $400,000 house. Well, that's a half a million dollars. Well, based upon the bank's, you know, breakdown of things, they're probably going to want close to $100,000 worth of equity in that transaction. Now, that can be equity that is, you know, maybe in the land from your purchase and, and, and payment on that. Or some of that can possibly fall into just where the appraisal value comes in versus what you have invested in the project. You know, there are isolated times where you'll see somebody get a deal on something and then, you know, the appraisal value is reflective of that deal, and they may pick up some immediate equity just from the transaction itself, and that helps them in that percentage breakdown to enable them to try and start that project, if that makes sense. Right. Probably won't happen much around here. It's but. it's getting tougher. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, the reality of it is, right. is not a lot of things are being sold that, at that undervalue today. That word but, deal is kind of not in this market. <laughs> and I tell people, I'm like, yeah. yeah, when they say that, I'm yeah. like, I don't know. It's not 2010 anymore. But right. there are times where, you know, you'll, you'll, have a piece of property and, and somebody be, you know, somebody does potentially get a good transaction on it. And if they have some immediate equity, that can help them in their percentage value to where it may minimize their out-of-pocket, you know, injection that they're having to make into that project. Mm-hmm. And it may enable them to defer some of that money towards the end if they want to, however they want to construe it financially. Okay. Um, I was going to ask uh, what were like five things to look at to be, I guess, yeah, look at with builders. But I think if you listen to everything you answered, um, you you answered pretty much all that within that, you know, the pros and cons to many things. Um, in general, buyers and sellers, any uh, any advice, not even in necessarily building, but just in general in our market? Yes, uh, I think from a, a buying standpoint, it's be patient. Um, I, Hearing I think, that a lot. Yep. I think right now we are definitely more on the higher end of our market. Uh, pricing has continued to, you know, steadily go up. That's understandable. So if you're going to have to pay what the market bears for something, you want to make sure it's the right property. I think there are a lot of times where, you know, especially <coughs> if, if inventory levels are low, you know, Again, it's that patience thing we were talking about earlier. You know, buyers can feel compelled to make transactions because they're afraid they're going to lose that transaction. I mean, there's a lot of times where something hits the market, depending on the price point, you might only have hours, maybe even less, to think about and process that purchase. And so, 
you know, that's where if you've done your research more on the front end to know what area you want to be in, what school system do you want to be in, you know, all those things are answered to where if a property comes up in that area, you're a little more inclined to pursue it with a clear conscience. The other thing is, is you're less inclined to pursue something in an area that you don't really want to be in and make an impulse purchase. You know, if, if you make an impulse purchase at Walmart, you lose a couple bucks. You make an impulse purchase on a house, it can affect you drastically. So that's that's the biggest thing is just being patient on the buying side. Um, you know, I think you asked me the other part of that question selling was on side, the selling yeah. side. I think on the selling side is, you know, just recognizing if I think right now the biggest misconception is is our market is strong, our price points are good, but you're not going to sell on the high end and buy on the low end. So the, the biggest thing I think you're seeing on the selling side is people pricing their products without doing their market research on where they're going to go next and what their price point is going to become. And all of a sudden, you know, they sell their house and they're tickled to death because they think, oh, man, we just, you know, we just made $30,000 from, you know, what we bought the house for four or five years ago. You know, yeah, hey, we're good. I would be much more than that. Well, potentially. But what happens is, is they start looking at what their rep- what their replacement cost is for what they just sold. Sometimes they're disappointed to realize that right. they can't replace what they just sold for what they sold it for. And then all of a sudden, the next tier value of housing, they're going to have to come up with 70 or 100 grand. And all of a sudden, they're realizing that financially, that wasn't within their cards of what they wanted to do or pursue. So I think, you know, the the incentive to sell obviously exists for all those reasons. But the reality of what they're going to encounter upon selling can deter people from potentially wanting to do that. I, I think you just need to do your research on that end to determine, hey, are we okay to sell? And if we are, where's our next move going to potentially be? And where's our pricing values to support that? All right. So where can people reach you? So um, I would say, obviously, I have a web page. Uh, it's uh, R. Steven, let's see, it's uh, com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a Facebook page. Uh, Ryan Stevens Custom Homes, Stevens with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S. Obviously, I have an office here in Lebanon. Um, Should I give, do I need to disclose that telephone number? Uh, You could put it, yeah. I'll have show notes as well. Okay, so So I I probably just, you know, they they can go to either the webpage uh, or the Facebook page. Obviously, the contact information is there, you know, in both of those resources. Absolutely, the internet, (laughs) fabulous internet. And I, I, well, I remembered when you came out and uh, gave a couple consultations with uh, one couple I was working with, and um, I was pretty impressed with your knowledge. So even hearing you now, I think that's obvi- that's obviously something to look for in a builder as well. Sure, you know, not you're not just talking to talk. Absolutely, you really know what you're talking about. I hope so. <laughs> um, I have I had some contractors come out, you know, and and I I was kind of set on something anyways, but you're kind of wanting to confirm price points and um, and you can just tell when somebody's really trying to sell you something, and it's like oh my gosh, like I wanted to be like. My, it was my wife and I were talking and, and I was just listening um, and I wanted to be like stop asking questions because I don't want to hear him talk anymore yeah because <laughs> he was just you know overselling it and I, once he said once he gave me this price point I'm like nah you know if it would be like next see ya right next. right <laughs> 
But obviously, with like you said, this massive purchase, there's a lot more to it, you know. To sure. Know, so, well, man, I appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Um, and you. Uh, hopefully, we'll be doing a deal soon. All right, no problem. Great interview and a lot of wisdom from Ryan Stevens. Now we're going to pick up for the second part of the interview with Ty Clark, and he'll finish out with another song he wrote. Did you have family that were music? Uh, music? Yeah, um, you know my mom. You know she sang in church and stuff. But my and I, you know, I didn't notice. I didn't know this, and I don't. I guess maybe I've been told, but um, I didn't know it until I'd probably been playing guitar and was doing some shows and stuff back home. That my grandmother and my grandfather were actually in a band. And they would like go do a whole bunch of shows and stuff. And she would always send me, you know, hey, what, what about an idea for this song? And I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. And I ne- never dawned on me until she told me one day. And I was like, that's where it comes from. Because I always wondered, I was like, okay, you know, I have a little bit of rhythm. I can carry a tune. I mean, I'm not going to say that I'm the best in the world, but, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, you know, pretty blessed in that aspect. But I was wondering all the time, where did this come from? You know, and why does she it, have like kind of a passion to yeah, help you out so. and text? And, and, exactly, you know, and so now um, she was a. They were in. Were they in a hardcore rapping band? Is that right? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite go that far with it. But um, to the best of my knowledge, it was more like a, a country type bluegrass band. Yeah. Uh, and so they just did a couple of shows. Now the name of their band, I do not know. But <laughs> um, hey, they could be majorly famous. They could have been. I had no idea. <laughs> well, that's pretty that's funny. Cool. Um, so, uh, where are you at on music um, as far as recording? You got some stuff coming out? Yeah, um, I've actually got a um, a website that you can go to. Um, it's actually a link to a website. It's reverbnation.com, and you can you know search my name, Ty Clark, and um, I believe the. Uh, it's ReverbNation.com forward slash Ty Clark 157. I believe that's right. So um, look it up. And, you know, there's a couple of songs on there. Uh, the couple that I've done uh, when I'll, while I've been up here and then a few that I did whenever I was still back home. But uh, the latest one that I had come out was a song called You Chose Me, which uh, if we get the opportunity, I'll be playing this here in just a little bit so um, I'm going to play that one and then there's a couple other ones that I'm super super proud of so um, it's been going great man I've been writing a lot Um, I'm actually going to be uh, competing in what they call it's uh, Nashville Rising Star. It's over in Franklin where the Galleria Mall is, uh, mm-hmm. where the draft room, if you know where that's at, or uh, I think it's uh, the whiskey room uh, is what they call it. Uh-huh. There's a little spot in there where they kind of put on the show and stuff, and you know a bunch of people from around the area come in and compete. It's a songwriting competition is what right. it is. Okay. And so um, it's a really, really cool deal, though, man. I'm excited about it, and it's going on tomorrow night, starting at, I believe, at 7 or 7.30. So it'll just be a bunch of people going up and playing one song a piece and be going from there now so do you I, I had I interviewed um, um, Julie Keltonic and one thing she had noted that she'll actually I guess have there's companies or maybe individuals or something that will actually you can like send your song to and say hey critique it mm-hmm. you yeah, know absolutely um, just to kind of get your feedback because you know you never know you could send it to your grandma and she might be like I love it <laughs> that's you the know, best like, song I've ever heard yeah, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that's what I tell people I'm like 
so what'd you think they're like it's good I'm like no give me feedback not yeah. for my song but constructive criticism yeah, yeah. And it's like I can take it I need you, it so yeah you, you have to have that do you do that? that do you have you done that absolutely much? I will, uh, it's not as far as sending it in uh, as people but what I like to do is you know I'll play a song or I'll slip a song in or something like that and be like oh this is my buddy playing tell me what you think I won't tell him that it's me and uh, so that way they almost give you like an, an unbiased opinion and uh, so it's it's kind of a cool deal like that. And I never really actually tell anybody until the songs are like, oh, who is that? I'm like, right. well, that was me. And they're like, now, what oh. If they okay. say, what if they're like, oh, um, man, I don't know about that. Um, do you, do you, it's over here. do you tell them? Um, or do you just keep quiet if it's no good? <laughs> oh, no, I'll tell them for sure. I'm like, hey, I appreciate that. I'll definitely uh, make some, make some corrections there for sure. Well, here comes Mr. Weber. Here hey, comes fellas. Mr. Weber. So he's been on the farm. I've so, been on the farm. Weber's the title guy, and yeah, he'll be doing. Here. Yep, sit right there. He'll be, uh, he'll be doing a little interview here in a few minutes. Bring a little dirt to this fine uh, uh-huh. <laughs> recreational. Can vehicle. we see? No, he's not blocking me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, being here two years, any any tips, advice that you would give uh, singer songwriters to? Get out there and try to make as many contacts as you possibly can. I've heard that. You know, um, that's the best way, you know, attend as many of the songwriters' rounds as you possibly can. You know, really, especially if, I, I would just have to say the the more contacts that you meet, the more people that you meet, get in there and, you know, say, you know, let's, let's write a song, let's get together, write a song or whatever. And that's probably the best piece of advice I could give. So, so it's almost like real estate. It's all a big key of networking. You know. Yeah, right. absolutely. Networking yourself. And, um, you know, obviously you can um, get your merchandise together and stuff like that. Especially, I mean, if you do good, you know, word of mouth is still the best advertisement ever. So, right. Um, so obviously social media helps you know stay up on that and get out there and just kind of showcase yourself as much as possible well i've told some others that have been on here i'm like just you might want to get a separate phone number because after this is out you will blow up and you'll get recording deals i've got i've got some business cards here that we're just going to put up to the camera it's got my cell phone number on it the whole nine yards (laughs) right so yeah just uh, be prepared for that man it's uh it's your two-year anniversary of nashville you know i thought it's today August 8th is August when I moved up. Yep. Nice. Well, I'll have to buy you lunch after this. Well, that, that sounds like a perfect deal to me. <laughs> we'll never turn it up. A musician, probably just like a realtor, will never turn away a free lunch. Right? You're exactly right. Yeah. Just like the title coming, I keep paying for everybody's lunch. I don't understand. I want lunch one day. <laughs> right. I, know, I do think about that sometimes. With some people, I'm like, you know, I probably should buy them a lunch. I'm like, man. Yeah. I always laugh. Like, when someone pulls their card off the table, I'm like, oh, what? What just happened? Right. <laughs> Hey, Ty, I've got a music question. If you okay. mind, yes, no, go for it. But, hey, uh, how hard is it to get a playing gig at a restaurant or bar in Nashville or the surrounding areas? I, I was down at Puckett's the other day, and they've got this guy on stage, Dynamite. He was amazing. Yeah. And I wonder how hard it was for someone with that much talent to get a, a gig like Puckett's on a Wednesday I have with no 17 people in the crowd. Yeah, and I guess it's just really you just got to go up there and— what I've heard and you know before in the past too is like especially if you get down the strip like on Broadway and stuff down there a lot of times they'll actually get bring you in and like you'll almost audition you know and they listen to you and they'll you know say yes or no pretty much but I mean I've I've got a couple of buddies that play down there you know pretty much every night and they've always said you know it's kind of had the best way to get in there just go in there and talk to somebody man and just really you know try to just make that contact there and get up on stage actually to piggyback on that um 
are there a lot of scouts, music scouts that are roaming from place to place, you know, venues? And you see, I don't know. They're always, yeah. I guess they're in the shadows if, if they are at those places. So, right. I mean, I would like to think so. That's why you're out there doing it. That's right. why you're out there cutting your teeth in the bars and stuff, you know what right. I mean? So, um, well, and I guess, it, too, it goes back to that networking aspect. You know, if you're yeah. hanging out music, people are liking music, chances are they're Somebody's going to hear about here. you and yeah. they're going to come in and check you out. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I know said. Weber has musicians in his family. And he should be. Oh, does he? I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is actually one of the first songs that um, I wrote whenever I got up here. Um, and then one of the first that I demoed whenever I got up here. And it's, uh, it's a super cool little song. Mm-hmm. It's called Right Road Now. So. Sunflower field became one with the setting sun. Her eyes like sky, your fixed gaze of blue that captivate anyone. She's free as a feather on a soft, slow breeze. She ditched her time with just her car and her keys. And she looked back and she said, That ain't the life I want to lead. She's on the right road now. Free of sin, says a From a baby blues, she's on the right road now. Spread her wings as she flew. There's no more looking back for her. She got the past in her rear view. And everybody called her crazy, but they ain't seen her lately. Oh, she left without a doubt that she is on the right road now. Saying nobody was drowned out by the pounding of her beating heart. Between the drinking and the women that he gave attention, and her words that cut too deep. She looked back, she said, That ain't the life I want to leave. She's on the right road now. Free of sin, says the rules. She's put miles behind her, and no more tears from her baby blues. She's on the right road now Spread her wings as she flew There's no more looking back for her She got the past in her rear view And everybody called her crazy But they ain't seen her lately Oh, she left without a doubt That she Is on the right road now Hope you enjoyed the interview with Ty Clark and make sure to check him out. Check out the show notes for all of his contact info. Also, make sure to reach out to Ryan Stevens if you have any interest in building. If you're looking at land, he would be happy to sit down with you and walk the lot and give you some insight and potential cost in developing that. Obviously, he is very well experienced in building. A lot of great insight. I enjoyed asking him several questions that 
I kind of had going around in my mind from talking to different builders. You hear a lot of pros and cons, this and that. I think he clarified a lot of the issues that are out there. And hopefully you walked away with some new insight in, in the construction of your home. Make sure to tune in to next week as I'll be sitting down with David Weber with Limestone Title and Escrow. We'll discuss title insurance for your home and also what a title company does to help you with the process of closing your home. You'll recall that David Weber had stepped into the end of the interview with Ty Clark. They work together at Limestone Title and Escrow. You'll make sure you want to tune in as well. David tells us a funny story about his father-in-law, Trace Atkins, back uh, whenever he was um, trying to fit into the family. Don't forget, I am a realtor in the Nashville area. If you have any real estate needs, buying, selling, investing, please reach out to me. We'd love to talk with you and see how I can help you in the process of making a purchase or a sell. Also, if you're outside of the Nashville area and you are in need of a realtor or a lender, make sure to reach out to me as well. I have a database that I can uh, look through and talk with some of the people in your area and put you in contact with them. Thanks again for tuning into episode 11. Hopefully you did enjoy that. If you do have a second to leave a review, I would always appreciate that. Thanks again and hope you have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Music City Real Estate Show. If you enjoyed our program, please leave us an iTunes rating and review and subscribe for more music and valuable insights each week into Nashville's real estate landscape. Send your comments, questions, and ideas to podcast at buckwalterimpactgroup.com. And remember, don't give up until you find the property that's right for you. See you next time.